0: Hello and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Each month I'll bring you essays, stories, or poetry from Parabola Magazine's Four Decades of Archives. And the podcast also features guests who will offer us guided meditation or prayers. To mark the start of 2017, this month I'd like to share with you one of Parabola.org's most read essays from the past year. Appropriate to this season, it touches on themes of death and rebirth. This is Learning to Die by Brother David Steindl Rast. The only point where one can start to talk about anything, including death, is where one finds oneself. And for me, this is as a Benedictine monk. In the rule of St. Benedict, the momenta mori has always been important, because one of what St. Benedict calls the tools of good works, meaning the basic approaches to the daily life of the monastery, is to have death at all times before one's eyes. When I first came across the Benedictine rule and tradition, that was one of the key sentences which impressed and attracted me very much. It challenged me to incorporate the awareness of death into my daily living, for that is what it really amounts to. It isn't primarily a practice of thinking of one's last hour or of death as a physical phenomenon. It is a seeing of every moment of life against the horizon of death and a challenge to incorporate that awareness of dying into every moment so as to become more fully alive. I have found that this approach is present sometimes more explicitly, sometimes more implicitly, in all the different spiritual traditions that I have come into contact with. It is certainly very strong in Zen Buddhism. It is present in Hinduism and Sufism. It is one of those basic human gestures by which one confronts meaning in order to live religiously. As I use the term religious, it refers to the quest for ultimate meaning. Death has evidently to be one of the important elements in that, for it is an event that puts the whole meaning of life into question. We may be occupied with purposeful activities, With getting tasks accomplished, works completed, and then along comes the phenomenon of death, whether it is our final death or one of those many deaths through which we go day by day. And death confronts us with the fact that purpose is not enough. We live by meaning. When we come close to death and all purpose slips out of our hands, when we can no longer manipulate and control things to achieve specific goals, can our life still be meaningful? We tend to equate purpose with meaning, and when purpose is taken away, we stand there without meaning. So there is the challenge. How, when all purpose comes to an end, can there still be meaning? This question suggests why, in the monastery, we are counseled or challenged to have death at all times before our eyes. For the monastic life is one way of radically confronting the question of life's meaning. In it you cannot get stuck in purpose. There are many purposes connected with it, but they are all secondary. As a monk you are totally superfluous, and so you cannot evade the question of meaning. This distinction that I am making between purpose and meaning isn't always carefully maintained in our everyday language and thought. In fact, we could avoid a good deal of confusion in our lives if we did pay attention to the distinction. It takes only a minimum of awareness to realize that our inner attitude when striving to achieve a purpose, a concrete task, is clearly different from the attitude we assume when something strikes us as specially meaningful. With purposes we must be active and in control. We must, as we say, take the reins, take things in hand, keep matters under control, and utilize circumstances like tools that serve our aims. The idiomatic expressions we use are symptomatic of goal-oriented, useful activity, and the whole of modern life tends to be thus purpose-oriented. But matters are different when we deal with meaning. Here it is not a matter of using, but of savoring the world around us. In the idioms we use that relate to meaning, we depict ourselves as more passive than active. It did something to me. It touched me deeply. It moved me. Of course, I do not want to play off purpose against meaning or activity against passivity. It is merely a matter of trying to adjust the balance in our hyperactive, purpose-ridden society. We distinguish between purpose and meaning, not in order to separate the two, but in order to unite them. Our goal is to let meaning flow into our purposeful activities by fusing activity and passivity into genuine responsiveness. Death puts our responsiveness to the ultimate test. Unless our dying becomes our full and final response to life, activity and passivity must ultimately clash in death. Because we are so one-sidedly active in life, we think of death one-sidedly, as passive. In death we are indeed passive, obviously dying is the most passive thing that can happen to us. It is the ultimate passivity, something that will happen to us inevitably. We will all be killed in one way or another, whether it be by disease, or by old age, or by an accident, or in some other way. We are well aware of this aspect, but not too many people realize that death is also ultimate activity. Again, some symptomatic idioms can help make this clear. It is, for example, very significant that the one act that is the most passive in our experience, namely dying cannot be expressed in English by a passive form. There is no passive voice to the verb to die. We can be killed, but we have to die. There is embedded into our very language, the realization that dying is not only passive, maybe not even primarily passive, but also the ultimate activity. Dying is something we have to do. Perhaps we can be killed without dying which would explain those ghost stories in which a house or a room is haunted by the continuing presence of a person who has been killed but hasn't really died. These two things have to come together in death. We do something, and we suffer something. More than that, we must suffer what we do, and do what we suffer. This doing and suffering, this give and take, which constitutes responsiveness, is brought into focus by our confrontation with death, but it has a far wider range. It characterizes life and all its aspects. Life, if it isn't a give and take, is not life at all. The taking corresponds to the active phase, to our purpose when we do something. While the giving of ourselves to whatever it is that we experience is the gesture by which meaning flows into our lives. It must be stressed that this is not an either-or. Life is not a give or take, but a give and take. If we only take, or only give, we are not alive. If we only take breath in, we suffocate, and if we only breathe out, we also suffocate. The heart pumps the blood in and pumps it out, and it is in the rhythm of give and take that we live. In practice, however, the balance is often upset in our lives. Our emphasis falls far too heavily on the taking, on the doing, on the purpose. We belong to an underdeveloped nation with regard to meaningful living. Because we keep cultivating only one half of the give and take of life, we are only half alive. Here again, the idioms we use are symptomatic of our preoccupation with taking and with purpose. We have scores of idioms that speak of taking, but few that speak of giving yourself. We take a walk, take an exam, take a trip, take a course, take a bath, take a rest, take a meal. We take practically everything, including many things that nobody can truly take, such as time, We say we take time, but we really live only if we give time to what takes time. If you take a seat, it is not a very comfortable way of sitting down, but if you let the seat take you, that's more like it. Taking a nap is the surest way to insomnia, for as long as you insist on taking it, you will never get it, but the moment you give yourself to it, you will fall asleep. We might begin to suspect that our one-sided insistence on taking not only prevents us from living balanced lives and living peacefully, but also from dying a balanced death and dying peacefully. Faced with the prospect of death, we must say, I can't take it. After a life in which we take and take, we eventually come up against something which we can't take. Death takes us. This is serious. One can go through life taking, and in the end all this will add up to having taken one's life, which in a real sense is suicide. But we can learn to give ourselves. It doesn't come easy, conditioned as we are to be fearful of giving ourselves, but it can be learned. In learning to give ourselves, we learn both to live and to die, to die not only our final death, but those many deaths of daily living by which we become more alive. This is precisely the point. Whenever we give ourselves to whatever presents itself, instead of grasping and holding it, we flow with it. We do not arrest the flow of reality, we do not try to possess, we do not try to hold back, but we let go, and everything is alive as long as we let it go. When we cut the flower, it is no longer alive. When we take water out of the river, it is just a bucket full of water, not the flowing river. When we take air and put it in a balloon, it is no longer the wind. Everything that flows and is alive has to be taken and given at the same time, taken with a very, very light touch. Here again, we are not playing off give-against-take, but learning to balance the two in a genuine response to living as well as to dying. I remember a story told me by a young woman whose mother was close to death. She once asked her, Mother, are you afraid of dying? And her mother answered, I'm not afraid, but I don't know how to do it. The daughter, startled by that reply, lay down on the couch and wondered how she herself would do it if she had to. And she came back with the answer, Mother, I think you have to give yourself to it. Her mother didn't say anything, but later she said, Fix me a cup of tea and make it just the way I like it, with lots of cream and sugar, because it will be my last cup of tea. I know now how to die. This inner gesture of giving yourself to it, of letting go from moment to moment, is what is so terribly difficult for us, but it can be applied to almost any area of experience. We mention time, for instance. There is the whole problem of free time, as we call it, of leisure. We think of leisure as the privilege of those who can afford to take time, this endless taking, when in reality it isn't a privilege at all. Leisure is a virtue, and one that anyone can acquire. It is not a matter of taking, but of giving time. Leisure is the virtue of those who give time to whatever it is that takes time, give as much time to it as it takes. That is the reason why leisure is almost inaccessible to us. We are so preoccupied with taking, with appropriating. Hence, there is more and more free time and less and less leisure. In former centuries, when there was much less free time for anybody, and vacations, for instance, were unheard of, people were leisurely while working. Now they work hard at being leisurely. You find people who work from nine to five with this attitude of let's get it done, let's take things in hand totally purpose-oriented, and when five o'clock comes, they are exhausted and have no time for real leisure either. If you don't work leisurely, you won't be able to play leisurely. So they collapse, or else they pick up their tennis racket or golf clubs and continue working, giving themselves a workout, as they say. We can laugh about it, but it goes deep. The letting go is a real death, a real dying. It costs us an enormous amount of energy. The price, as it were, which life exacts from us over and over again for being truly alive. For this seems to be one of the basic laws of life. We have only what we give up. We all have had the experience of a friend admiring something we owned, when for a moment we had an impulse to give that thing away. If we follow this impulse, and something may be at stake that we really like and it pains us for a moment... Then forever and ever we will have this thing it is really ours in it, our memory it is something we have and can never lose it is all the more so with personal relationships if we are truly friends with someone we have to give up that friend all the time we have to give freedom to that friend like a mother who gives up her child continually if the mother hangs on to the child first of all it will never be born it will die in the womb But even after it is born physically, it has to be set free and let go over and over again. So many difficulties that we have with our mothers, and that mothers have with their children, springs exactly from this, that they can't let go. And apparently it is much more difficult for a mother to give birth to a teenager than to a baby. But this giving up is not restricted to mothers. We must all mother each other, whether we are men or women. I think mothering is just like dying in this respect— It is something that we must do all through life. And whenever we do give up a person or a thing or a position, when we truly give it up, we die. Yes, but we die into greater aliveness. We die into a real oneness with life. Not to die, not to give up, means to exclude ourselves from that free flow of life. But giving up is very different from letting someone down. In fact, the two are exact opposites. It is an upward gesture, not a downward one. Giving up the child, the mother upholds and supports him, as friends must support one another. We cannot let down responsibilities that are given to us, but we must be ready to give them up, and this is the risk of living, the risk of the give and take. There is a tremendous risk involved, because when you really give up, you don't know what is going to happen to the thing or to the child. If you knew, the sting would be taken out of it, but it wouldn't be a real giving up. When you hand over responsibility, you have to trust. That trust in life is central to all the religious traditions. It is called by different names. Christians know it as faith, and in Zen Buddhism, to my surprise, it is also called faith, though with a connotation different from the one it has in the biblical tradition. It isn't faith in anything or anyone, but there is a lot of emphasis in Buddhist monasteries on the tension between faith and doubt, faith always being a nose's length ahead of doubt. The greater your doubt, the greater your faith will be, faith in ultimate reality, faith in yourself, if you wish, your true self. But in the Buddhist as well as the Christian tradition, faith is courage, the courage to take upon yourself the risk of living and dying, because the two are inseparable. Thus one could distinguish between two ways of dying— A mere giving in, which means you are being killed without really dying, and a vital way of dying, a giving up, which is this giving of yourself and so dying into deeper life. But that takes a great deal of courage, because it is always a risk, a step into something unknown. It also takes a great deal of vitality, and that is why I am a little reluctant to accept what Karl Rahner and Ladislas Boros have to say about death. These are two German Catholic theologians who have written with a great deal of insight on death, but both put much weight on their ideas of what happens in a person's last moments. I would much rather say, die when you are alive, because you don't know how well you will be able to do something that takes all your energy when you are senile or very sick. Here again is one of the points where I think birth and death come very close to one another. Neither of the two events can be precisely pinned down to a moment in time. We don't really know when a person is born. We can point to the physical fact of the umbilical cord being cut, but for some people they come to life maybe after 40 years or even later. When does a person come to life? I can imagine that the moment in which someone comes to life is also the moment in which he really dies. And everything that led up to that for 45 years, perhaps, is time spent in practicing for the important moment. And everything that follows is time spent letting nature run its course. Maybe in some people's lives, this happens all of a sudden, at one moment. While with others, it is a gradual thing that goes laboriously through many stages. Most of what I have said simply means, let's learn to die so that when our last hour comes, and if we are still alert to it, we will be able to die well. But at any rate, let's learn it. And that means let's learn to give ourselves over and over again to that which takes us. Let go of things, or rather, give up as a mother gives up. Let go is a little too passive. It comes too close to letting down. Giving up is the truly sacrificial gesture. So in many traditions, you have this notion that throughout our lives, we train for a right dying. And that means to train for flowing with life, for giving ourselves. And this suggests some more symptomatic idioms of taking and giving that show ways we can make the inner gesture of dying, giving thanks instead of taking for granted, giving up rather than taking possession, for giving, as opposed to taking offense. What we take for granted does not make us happy. What we hold on to deteriorates in our grasp. What we take offense at we make into a hurdle we can't get past. But in giving thanks, giving up, forgiving, we die here and now and become more fully alive. We speak, for instance, of a good death versus a bad death. I suppose the death we call bad is the one in which we struggle and cannot die peacefully. There are many cases when the doctor says, I don't know how this patient keeps on living, but perhaps he never learned to let go, so he hangs on for dear life, as we say. He will eventually be killed but he has not learned to give himself freely. After all, it is not a dogma or a theory, but something that anyone can check out and experience in his own life, that when we really give up and actively die, we die not into death, but into a richer life. And when we drag on and hang on to something that we should have already let go of, we are dead and decaying. Thus we know, not from any revelation, but from our own personal daily experience, that the fruit of a good death, a death to which we give ourselves, is greater fullness of life, and the fruit of a death against the grain, in which we are just killed and do not give ourselves, is destruction, or what the Bible calls the second death. In our human experience, time is, to use a fine expression I heard somewhere, a measure for the energy it takes to grow. In that sense, it has nothing to do with minutes and hours, years and eons, with clock time. And growing means to die to what we are in order to become what we are not yet. The seed has to die to become a plant, and we have to die to being children in order to become adolescents and so on. But our most important death has to do with dying to our independence as individuals and so coming to life as persons in our interdependence. We find this terribly difficult because we always want to retain our independence, the feeling that I don't owe anybody anything. Then comes the moment of death, whether it is the ultimate death or a moment in the middle of life, and we give up our independence and come to life in interdependence, which is the joy of belonging and of being together. This is what we really most want, but except for such moments, we hang on to something which we don't really want and yet are afraid to let go of, our independence and the isolation which necessarily goes with it. The moment we let go, we die into the joy of interdependence. The importance of our physical death fades away in comparison with this dying into what St. Paul calls the real life, Christ in us. He says in another passage, I live, yet not I, Christ lives in me." This is not a private statement about himself. He means that each one of us ought to be able to say that. As believers, you and I might say that as well as St. Paul, and that means that it is the true self that lives in all of us, yet not I, Christ lives in me. The face we had before before we were born, as the Buddhists put it, is the Christ reality. That doesn't mean narrowly Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. It means the Christ. It is not separated from Jesus of Nazareth, but it is not limited to him. It comes very close to what Buddhists call Buddha nature and Hindus call Atman, the lasting reality. But we are still afraid of losing our individuality in this all-embracing unity. I think we could overcome this fear by seeing that divine oneness is not achieved by the imposition of uniformity, but by the embracing of limitless variety. There is room for all our personal differences within it. One time, I talked with Aido Roshi about the question of the personality or impersonality of this ultimate reality, for here there seems to be what is generally thought of as an important difference of concepts between East and West, or between the Buddhists and the Christians. The Buddhists use the image of waves on the sea. Each of us is just one wave that comes out and goes back into the sea. I told him that a Westerner does not readily accept this. He says, I am somebody with self-consciousness, awareness, and self-possession. Am I just going back into some cosmic custard? If that sea out of which I came is impersonal, and I am personal, then I would be more than the sea. The answer he gave me was simple enough. If the sea did not have all the perfection of personhood, from where would the waves have gotten it? That is a beautiful Buddhist answer, and it does full justice to the Christian concern. But we could also say, all right, the wave goes back into the ocean, and that is a beautiful picture. But that high point when the wave was cresting, the moment when it was most alive, that, as T.S. Eliot said, is a moment that was not only in time, but in and out of time. It was one of those now moments that does not pass away, that is eternity. And therefore, anything that happens at that moment of the fullest personhood simply is, It does not belong to, was, or will be but to that which can never again be lost, maybe because it never was unrealized, maybe because it is a bursting forth of the eternal now into time. I experience it as being realized, but perhaps it is my homecoming. I like the suggestion, too, that the virgin energy of a life in which personhood was never developed simply returns to the source, a wave that never crested. This image somehow connects with the idea of time running out, but the turning point of the spiritual life is the moment when time running out is turned into time being fulfilled. It rests with us whether death will be a fizzling out when our time runs out, or an explosion of the fullness of time into the now of eternity. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I place before you today life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Life is something we have to choose. One isn't alive simply vegetating, it is by choosing, making a decision, that you become alive. In every spiritual tradition, life is not something that you automatically have, it is something that you must choose, and what makes you choose life is the challenge of death, learning to die, not eventually, but here and now. Excerpts from Brother David Steindl-Rast's essay "Learning to Die," which appeared in the winter 1977 issue of Parabola, death. The full essay is available to read for free on our website, parabola.org. I encourage you to take the time to do so, especially at this turning point in the cycle of the year, and in so many parts of the world, where questions of independence and interdependence, unity and diversity, are so fraught and so prescient. Our final thought for today comes from a hero to me and to many of our readers who passed away in November, Leonard Cohen, who said, prayer is translation. A man translates himself into a child, asking for all there is in a language he has barely mastered. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.